and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to Becky Baird, a senior fellow at Health Think Tank, the King's Fund. Becky is the lead author of a report the King's Fund published in February called Making Care Closer to Home a Reality. The report says that the government's failure to invest in primary care ranks as one of the most significant and long-running failures of NHS policy over the past 30 years. Coming up in this interview, I talked to Becky about why we need an NHS that's focused around primary care and why, despite so many policies advocating the shifts over the years, this has not happened. She also explains how she thinks we can make that move in future and what needs to happen at a national and local level to make it a reality. Before we start, just a quick reminder that MIMS Learning Live Digital starts on the 11th of March. MIMS Learning is our sister website and education platform which provides hundreds of online learning modules for GPs, nurses and other healthcare professionals. Between the 11th and 14th of March, MIMS Learning Live Digital will provide four evenings of free clinical webinars featuring expert speakers and live Q&As. Some of the topics being covered include elderly care, early cancer diagnosis and cardiology. To find out more and register for your free place, go to mimslearninglive.com. I'm really pleased to welcome onto the podcast now Becky Baird, who is a senior fellow at the health think tank, the King's Fund. Becky works in the health policy team, leading research and analysis across a range of healthcare issues with a focus on general practice. She's worked in the NHS and social care for more than 25 years and before joining the King's Fund was Associate Director for Service Improvement in a Cancer Network. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Becky. Nice to be here. Thank you. So you're here today to talk about the latest report you've worked on for the King's Fund, which is about how we make moving care closer to home a reality. So before we get into talking about some of the findings and the conclusions you draw, how did you go about getting the information for the report? What was the process of putting all of this together? So I worked with a team. We knew we wanted to set out to answer this question. Why has it been so hard to move care out of hospital care close to home, at least, in the last, what's nearly 30, it's just 30 years this year since I started working in the NHS. So with our team, we we took a variety of approaches. We did quite a lot of data analysis. So we looked at what's happened to finances, to workforce, and looked at all the available data. We looked back at at least 30, coming up to 50 years of literature from the UK and internationally. So we tried to look at, we're not the only country grappling with this, but also what could we learn about previous efforts and what could we learn there? And then we talked to people. So we interviewed a range of people across the system who played different roles over the last 30 years or so in this, including politicians, people leading the NHS nationally, system leaders, patient leaders, and leaders of all different professions, therapies, doctors, nurses, trying to get a sense of what they felt. And then what we did, we dived in a bit more detail into some of the areas through some challenge groups where we said, well, we think this, what do you think? And gathered some more people together who were experts to get underneath all that. And that's how we pulled together our report. We're a podcast about general practice and primary care. So I don't think you get much argument from many of our listeners that primary care needs a greater share of NHS funding. But when you say in the report that the failure to grow and invest in primary and community services ranks as one of the most significant failures of NHS policy for more than 30 years. So what exactly is the state of NHS funding now? What proportion goes to primary care and how has that changed in recent years? Spending across the board has gone up, but you'd expect that. But the proportion of spending on primary care has actually fallen from 8.9% of the health and care budget in 2015-16 to 8.1% in 21-22. The largest proportion goes on acute hospitals and acute hospital trusts over the same period have seen about 27% funding growth, with community trusts seeing about 14% funding growth. So 
we can really see that the funding has gone in a different direction. And the same thing has happened with workforce. The number of NHS consultants has grown by about 18% in five years, but there was really the number of GPs has been at best static. If you include the trainees, it's a 4% growth, but they're not qualified GPs. So actually, if you just take qualified GPs, it's static. The report obviously looks at what's happened historically, as well as what needs to happen going forward. But before we get into some of that, what do we actually mean when we're talking about moving care closer to home? What were you actually looking at? This is not necessarily just about moving services from one place to another. This took us a long time. We talked a lot about definitions in this work, as you can see. And we often talk about all of care outside hospital as not being hospital, which really centres hospitals. We really struggled a little bit to try and think about what terminology we use. When we talked about primary and community health services, what we're really talking about is a health system that has its primary focus on keeping people in the community at the home, looked after by primary community healthcare services, so that hospitals are just a place that can do very specialist work that only really exists to do that specialist work, which they're really good at doing. So what we were talking about really is less about moving care, but more about shifting the focus so that more care and more growth can happen in primary care rather than in hospital. Probably quite important to explain why we need to move towards a healthcare system that has a greater focus on primary and community care. So why is that? Health systems across the world are grappling with how to make healthcare sustainable. Healthcare costs are rising exponentially. We're living longer, which is great, but living in poor health for longer with more complex health conditions and in good news, more things that we can do about those health conditions as medical research improves, we can do more to treat people. But for health systems to be both sustainable and indeed equitable in the future, I think there's a general consensus and certainly the World Health Organization think this, that we need to really centre healthcare around communities and around where people live. This is about keeping people as healthy as possible. It's not all about kill or cure. It's not looking at short-term interventions so much. It's helping people live longer, preventing healthcare conditions as long as we can. And then when people have developed healthcare conditions, general frailty to do with ageing, that we're able to care for them successfully in the community. There's been loads of policy statements, announcement about moving care closer to home, getting more things in the community. And I know that I've certainly written about it a lot over the years. There seems to be loads of times that people have said we need to do it, but it just doesn't ever seem to happen. That's right. We tried to get underneath that was really what we were looking to find out. And what we found was a range of reasons. One is we don't really know why we're doing it, or at least we don't agree why we're doing it. There has been a general thought that doing care in the community is cheaper. And the reality, it isn't, at least not in the short term. Most care costs are staffing. Staff costs the same whether they're in a hospital or in the community. It's the estate costs in hospitals that make it more expensive and some of the acute technology, obviously. But unless you can close that capacity and take it out, you can't save money. And actually, we're underbedded as a nation anyway. We've got less hospital beds than most comparable nations. So we're not talking about being able to extract money from hospitals to invest in the community. And often what we found is that when efforts to change the focus of care go into the community and it doesn't seem to have an immediate financial impact, then we abandon them. So not really a sense that we're very clear about why we're doing this. Actually, it's about quality of care. It's about long-term sustainability. The counterfactual, if you like, is if we don't do this, we'll just have to build more and more acute hospitals to deal with emergency. And we'll end up with this very unsustainable system that's all about responding to emergency and dealing with stuff far too late. The second thing we found was that often primary community healthcare services are invisible. The data is hard to quantify and therefore easy to overlook. And added to that, we've got a leadership in health and care, particularly in healthcare, 
both managerial and clinical, that is mainly come from an acute hospital background because we really privilege working in big teaching hospitals, particularly in NHS leadership. So if people don't understand and have worked in primary community services, it's hard to prioritise them. We also found that there were misconceptions that the public will prioritise hospital services over and above everything else. We found that not to be true. A financial architecture that doesn't support a focus on primary care, short-term approaches to investment, lots of different reasons. You talked about that cycle of invisibility and also you talked about the fact that you can't show the benefits of this really quickly. How much of a problem do you think the political cycle is in all of this? Because obviously the NHS is such an important part when it comes to elections and politics, but people are only always looking four years ahead, five years ahead. And how does that impact on all of the ability to actually do anything about this? It's a really tricky one. The NHS and social care accounts for such a large proportion of public expenditure There's always going to be political scrutiny. It would be naive to think that we could get rid of political involvement in the healthcare system. It's such a massive part of how we spend our money as a nation. However, we have seen governments sort of try to come to some agreements over various bits and pieces and try to think about long-term planning. But I have to say that the failure to deal with anything about the social care funding situation doesn't fill me with hope that we'll be able to get consensus. But I think actually... We can't not do this. We really do need to pivot the health service. Otherwise, it will be deeply unaffordable in the future. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're really keen to try and raise the issues now, coming into lots of discussion about the future of the health service. And actually, that's why we started doing this work. There was lots of talk about, is the health service sustainable? Is it Does it need to be thrown up in the air and start again? What do we need to do? And actually, we thought, well, we don't need to start again. We should probably just implement the vision that we've had for 30 years and have failed to do so. You mentioned social care there, and I was going to ask you specifically about that, but there's another thing as well, which you also touched on as well, is that obviously social care and prevention are two things that are often very much overlooked. I mean, social care is not part of the NHS. How much of a lack of focus on those two areas? How much do you think that they're kind of contributing to problems that we've got in the NHS? Hugely. And as we say in our report, unless we really sort out the future of social care, then none of this is possible because we need social care to be in a good shape so that we can keep to support people at home. So toenail cutting services is my favourite thing to talk about. When I first started in social care in 1994, I was working locally and I was talking about toenail cutting services. If you close that, you could really impact residential care admissions because if somebody can't cut their own toenails, they can't put their shoes on. If they can't put their shoes on, they can't walk. And they'll either fall or they won't be able to get to the shops and won't be able to cook and look after themselves. So actually, just by putting in an Age UK toenail cutting service, or Age Concern, I think it was probably in those days, you could make a massive difference to people. And yet that's quite hard to demonstrate because what you're preventing is something that never happened. So you can't measure the admission to hospital. And they will probably always need an admission to hospital at some point. But what you've probably done is kept them at home for longer. We've really tried in this report not to fall into the trap of saying, and social care on the everything we say about health. And we really try to think about what that means because there's a lot of work needs to be done for social care, which is separate to the NHS. It, it, it works in a slightly different way. Lots is different, but without doing that. And then prevention again, I think we do again fall into this. Where's the business case? Where can we see the evidence for change and long-term business cases and preventing things happening are much harder to measure than things that do happen. You've also mentioned staff. Now, obviously, we've got this NHS workforce plan. Do you think some of the measures in there are going to go any way towards addressing some of those problems you talked around with staff being skewed too much towards the acute sector? Do you think the workforce plan has got the measures in there to ensure that the workforce in primary care and community services are growing? 
And I think the long-term workforce plan does talk about growing primary and community services, which is fantastic. But I, there's more to it than that, I think. Um, one of the things that we found is we really need to think about how we train staff. We're training to work differently. Working in the community is different. I mean, I know that listeners of podcasts will know this. The nature of risk is different. It's much more autonomous practice. You're out there holding a lot of risk and often holding it rather than preventing it. And I think the risk adversity in hospitals, which is quite likely, is is very, very different to keeping somebody at home and to having a balanced view about what the risk is for that patient. We found that we need to do a lot more to make these careers attractive, to think about sustainable careers in community services. There are pay differentials, for example, staff in the community and certainly in general practice are often not subject to agenda for change, which is often seen to be a better pay deal. How are we going to support the system to see these jobs as high profile, high status jobs working in the community? They always used to be back in the day, and that's what we found in our research. But actually, there's a sense that it's either the place that you go at the end of your career, and it's a nice, easy job going having cups of tea with people, or it's a really, really risky job that you can't possibly do if you're newly qualified and you need to have the safety of the hospital around you. So there's a lot to be done in there. We've got some recommendations in our report for the colleges and for other training providers. What are some of those recommendations? What are the, some of the things you suggest needs to happen? We talk about reviewing the nature of placements in training so that they are not voluntary. Do we explore what it would mean to make placements in community compulsory? That's also true for managerial as well as clinical staff. Look, we don't have a lot of NHS management trainees, for example, get placed into community. It's very hard to place them in general practice, for example, because of the rest of the infrastructure. So we make some recommendations around that. We make recommendations about general thinking about the status and the pay. We also talk about training around working in multidisciplinary teams and working across boundaries because that's really important. The roles of clinicians, particularly working in the community and indeed managers, are all about brokering. They're all about trying to smooth the way between all these different mesh of providers. We're not talking about structural reorganisation where you reorganise everything into one big single entity and hope that everything then works we don't talk about that. What we do talk about is making pathways through the system much easier for patients. We talk as well about how we can train and support people to manage complexity because we have a system that's very much predicated on single disease pathways. And actually, most people don't sit on a single disease pathway. There are multiple pathways. Again, general practitioners will know this. But how do we help balance that flow around our health and care system, which is not really designed for complex patients? One of the things you talk about is the need for a greater leadership focus on primary and community services. How can we make that happen? Are you talking about leaders right at the top or just leaders within systems? And how can we make sure that they have got that focus? We're talking about it right the way through, certainly at national level. As we said, we really want to make sure that there are people at national level who understand primary community health services. And that goes to the way in which we privilege the working in a large teaching hospital over other complex issues. So we really need to think about that so that that leadership is coming from the top. Within systems, we need people who can really understand and promote primary community health services. And partly that comes to the way in which we performance manage the system at the moment. And we heard this in our research that, you know, leaders in systems are told to focus on hospitals. They're judged on their performance related to hospitals. What would it mean if we said, actually, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to judge you on your performance related to community and primary care. What would that mean in turn? And then right the way through the system, we talk about how important leaders coming from that community are and giving people headspace to do this stuff. Everybody's running flat out. There's no time to think. There's very little infrastructure support, particularly around primary care. 
we've seen great things through the uh, general practice development program. There's starting to think about doing innovation and stuff out there in the system, but actually the infrastructure within ICS is to support primary care particularly, but also community services is really lacking, certainly since uh, the days of the PCTs. And we need to do a lot more of that right through the system to boost the focus. We talked about the funding disparities between primary and secondary care at the start, but obviously to change all of this, we need more of that funding to go into primary care. But how do we do that without causing problems in other parts of the system? Like you said, it's not just a case of moving money from one area to the other. Is it only something that can really happen, you know, on a rising tide of investment where everyone's getting a bit more money, but then a bigger share of that more money goes into primary care? Actually, that is what we're saying. We're saying that it's this is about growth. Right. There is always growth in the health and care system. There's always new money coming in, but it's the proportion of that growth. Right at the moment, all that growth is going into acute hospitals. So what we want to do is reverse where the growth goes. Hospitals are in trouble. There's no two ways about it. We don't have enough beds. We're already very underbedded. This is not about taking from one and giving to another. This is about, we use the image of a spotlight in our research, which is about moving the spotlight from hospital to primary and community services and keeping it there, letting hospitals get on and do what hospitals are really good at, but putting the focus of our system, whether it's performance management, finance, workforce, or anything else, onto primary and community services. One of the biggest challenges around some of this stuff is estates and capital investment. There is just no room in primary care at the minute to do some of the things that people would really like to do you know, themselves if they could. What do you think needs to happen on estates and infrastructure to help deliver this vision? It's one of the most complex areas, and we looked at it in quite some detail in our work. You're right. There are an awful lot of weird and wonderful rules around estate about market rate, and that applies to local government and what they're allowed to do with their estate. It applies to the way GP estate is reimbursed. I think we need to do a lot more work to really think about what's the estate we need in the community. And how do we ease the passage, if you like, for all these organisations to come together? Think about what the estate is available locally and how we can best use that estate across organisations. At the moment, it's so tied up in individual pockets of income and, and different ways that we're sustaining our service. It just doesn't make any sense. But if I had an answer to that, I'd love to give it to you. But I think it's an area where absolutely more work is needed to be done. And I'm really hoping that that will be a priority for the NHS. And also, as we get into things like contract negotiation, it will be really important that we think about some of this stuff. But it does go wider than just the NHS. It definitely goes into the way in which local authority business rates work, for example, lots of uh, how voluntary sector organisations are supported. There's a lot of work to do to really think about how public sector estate as a whole is used. And that's a really complex issue. So where does general practice fit into all of this? What conclusions did you draw on how the GP contract needs to change as part of all of this? So for me, I think a lot of the focus on the general practice contract, it's a really challenging thing to have a national contract and yet say we want people to be locally responsive. And we can see that in the way, for example, the Carhill formula does not work around areas of deprivation. So we really need to think about local context much more. I would like to see more local flexibility than national targets. So for example, around quaff, what matters to the patients in a practice? What's the practice good at? What's it not good at? What should it improve at as opposed to kind of meeting blanket national targets? That's my personal view. It wasn't particularly part of this research. But I think that in order for that to be the case, we need just a lot more support around general practice, whether that's access to data analytics or organizational change support. I'm not sure that that needs to be, again, about structural reorganization. That's just about putting extra support in 
that general practice can draw on, giving general practice the headspace to really grow and develop. At the moment, I think everybody's so incredibly busy. Nobody's looking up because there's no time just trying to get through the volume of work. It's going to require a wholesale shift in thinking for some of this stuff to change. But for the contract, I'd like to see a lot more locally tailored and thoughtfully negotiated contract than single national contract. The worry with that, though, obviously, is that you would really need to have some kind of safeguards, wouldn't you? Like that, like you were talking about having the leaders in local systems having that focus on primary care. Because inevitably, I mean, one of the things we're really seeing at the minute is lots of local enhanced services, so local contracts that practices operate. They're being slashed and cut because of overspends in secondary care. Yet again, you know, primary care, community services are bearing the brunt of overspends in hospital care, like in an attempt to balance the books. So there need to be some kind of system, wouldn't there, where the managers and the local system leaders had, you know, some incentive to make sure that those things worked. And I think partly that comes down to, you know, what are they held to account for? They're not held to account for how well general practice is functioning. They're held to account for what their ambulance snack times look like. And in that case, that's what they're going to prioritise, or for, particularly for financial overs. But like, that's how they're held to account is for how the finance is doing. So, of course, they're going to prioritise that. My concern about the national contract is often that we just keep loading more and more and more targets into it, more and more and more things that we think are important. And it's you can't do everything. So I'd much rather see a practice that has a huge substance misuse problem in its area be able to focus just on that and worry less about I don't know, care homes or diabetes checks or whatever it was, because they've got a particular need, then hold them to account for delivering against that need. So there is a balance between a nationally coherent offer. Absolutely, we will always need stuff to be nationally available. But I'd like to see, in addition to that national, some more local flexibility. But as you say, in a way that still doesn't allow the focus to be on hospitals. And again, that requires this big shift in focus. I don't think you'd get any arguments from lots of people who I speak to and who listen to this about less targets. I think they'd probably very much welcome that. One of the other things, actually, you talked about in the report is a need to focus on outcomes rather than outputs and processes for single conditions. I mean, how do you see that working? I think we've probably got a lot more to do to investigate how we monitor and measure and get feedback about how things are going. We've done some work at the King's Fund looking at how do you gather really meaningful information from individual patients and from communities and how do you really think about what matters to communities. To think about, uh, for example, PROMs and PREMs, the the patient-related outcome measures and patient-related experience measures. It's really complicated when what you're trying to judge is subjective. It's about quality of life. And I think that the patients are the best people to judge that rather than on things you can quantify. And the temptation is, well, we're always trying to focus on what we can quantify. We don't concentrate on what matters. And that's a problem. I remember Mike Richards, when he was head of hospital inspection at the CPC, used to say, if I only could measure two things, it would be patient experience and staff experience. And if those two things are all right, we're probably doing okay. And there's a lot about that, I think. And you can see it even from the GP patient survey. It's a really good survey. And it might not tell you everything. But actually, if the results on that are really quite poor, Something's probably going on, whether it's a lack of funding, whether it's poor leadership, whether something will be going on in that practice. For me, we need to pay more attention just to think about that in a more nuanced way. But again, we don't have the people available in ICSs to help do that kind of stuff or to make sense of it. And certainly the general practitioners themselves don't have time. You talk about that there, about engagement with local communities. The report talks about the need for less top-down direction control and more engagement with staff as well and those working in other local organisations as well as engagement with local communities. 
how could we go about doing that and how would it help? So I think we're learning a lot about that. We're about to publish at the King's Funds the results of some work we've done in Grenfell to look at the healthcare response to Grenfell. And a lot of that has been around engagement. We're seeing some really interesting things there. So I think there is a lot of learning about how you do really good community engagement. Everything we know about good leadership and staff engagement is so critical. And we know it, we just don't necessarily always do it. And I think in the health and care system. So I think we do know what to do. It's finding that time and headspace. I think some of the trust and relationships have probably broken down quite a lot in local systems. And I certainly hear, I'm sure you do, a lot of that discussion of, you know, we don't trust the ICS. We don't want them to see our data because we don't know the same was true in the days of CCGs. You know, we don't know what they'll do with it. They're just going to take our money away. There's something about coming together with a shared agenda and an agreed narrative that we're all in this trying to pull in the same direction, which I think would really help. Obviously, a lot of what we've been talking about here is a more focus on local, less on system. The move towards integrated care systems was designed as this idea to help integrate the NHS better locally. Do you think that's the right sort of organisational structure to achieve this? Because we've moved from CCGs to ICSs. ICSs cover a much bigger footprint. One of the complaints I hear a lot when I talk to people is that they don't know anybody really in the ICS. They're so far away, whereas at least in the CCG, it was a bit closer to general practice. Do you think integrated care systems are the right vehicles, as it were, to drive all this forward? In short, yes. I think they're probably as good as anything else. I've, as I say, I've been here doing this 30 years now. We'll never find a perfect structure. It will never happen. But I think we probably should just stick with one because every time we get a reorganisation, we see massive disruption. I mean, the ICS is, to be fair, having to deal with 30% head cuts at the moment. No wonder they've got no time to do anything. It's a huge issue. I think a lot of this will lie in how ICSs really think about place and locality. And and there's sort of sense of needing to devolve right through the system and making sure that you're not just devolving to a vacuum, that there is some, there are some people and relationships there. When I'm out in systems doing development work and training, you meet amazing people who've known and worked together for years and years, doing some incredible stuff. And actually, the system sometimes can just get in the way of what they want to do. So I think if we could just free up some of that work, there is a temptation sometimes to think that everything in the NHS must have a top-down diktat, otherwise it won't happen. Whereas actually, I don't think that's true. I think day to day, there's practices all over the place doing great work. We saw it in the vaccination campaign, for example, where, yes, it was a bit of command and control, but actually it was mostly just crack on and find a way of vaccinating. So these are amazing professionals who want to do the best they can for their patients. And I think while we keep thinking, well, things won't happen unless we absolutely tell people they have to and crack the whip, then I think there is an issue with that. But we also need the time, the headspace and the support to be able to do that properly. Do you think primary care networks have got an important role in this, like kind of groups of practices? Because you talked about place level there. For me, place is probably multiple primary care networks. It's very confusing, all this different terminology, but maybe around, say, a district council, if you're in a local area or a town or a natural place. I think primary care networks, they're not organisations and we mustn't really fall into the trap of thinking that they are. They are groups of practices coming together to support each other. And it's really, and they're actually a contractual vehicle as much as anything. Do I think that practices working together across an area is a good thing? Yes, I absolutely do. I think there's lots that can be done at that level. I think there's also a lot that needs to be done at a very, very micro level within the practice. And I think both of those things are true. What I think needs to happen is that, and I've seen some great examples of this through federations and others, where there's a coming together to think, actually, what would we need to help us do this better across an area? So the ABC Federation in Surrey, who do brilliant work on 
the development of their PCNs. They've really thought about what that means to support their PCNs in developing. What does it mean to help organizations do that? I've seen primary care networks do brilliant stuff. And I've equally seen primary care networks where they spend so much time just trying to get through basic conflict and sort out historical issues and that it's very hard to move on. It doesn't happen by magic. It doesn't happen just because you put a structure together. This is all about people and relationships and trying to put in place the right environment where those relationships can flourish. How do we actually get it to start? Is it something that just local leaders need to just start working on? Or is it something that really needs to come from the top down and say, right, you need to start doing this now? It's both and. It needs a national focus because, as I've said, while you're focusing all of your the way in which you performance manage your system on hospitals, nothing will change. So some of that absolutely has to come from politicians and from national level. There are some stuff that will take a long time, like the way we train and grow our leadership. And I think it is really incumbent in ICSs to start thinking, you know, they were set up to do population health. That's the whole reason for ICSs in the first place. But most of them aren't able to do that because they're so focused on trying to think about hospital deficits and all that kind of stuff. I think one of the things that politicians might need to think about is, for example, if you prioritise hospitals until the hospitals are sorted out, we will never do this. And I, you know, in 30 years when I will not be working in the NHS, we will still be having the same conversation because waiting times won't resolve quickly. They will eventually. And actually, if you could free up hospitals from some of the emergency work, maybe they could crack on and do some electives because they wouldn't be so busy doing up. So at some point, the shift does have to be made. But I think the primary move will have to come from national level. You touched on there about the fact that the public don't necessarily think that we have to spend all the money on hospitals. So some of it must be surely about getting the general public to understand this. And once they're in the right place, then politicians will always go where the votes are, won't they? It was such an interesting part of our research because we looked in detail at this issue. You know, obviously, there have been elections lost because an A&E department was closed. However, when you dig into what the patient and public think, it isn't quite as simple as that. If you talk to Health Watch England, what do they get most contact about? It's general practice and dentistry. Absolute mile because the proportions of people affected by general practice and dentistry are so much bigger than those affected by A&E or elective weights. Even though those weights are really massive, actually primary care is really important to people. We also know if you do really good engagement and bring people along with the change, often what we'll say is, oh, we're going to prioritise care closer to home. And what that means is we're going to close this service and then we probably won't get around to reprioritising anything else. So you'll just get a worse service. Actually, if what we say is, you know, we are going to move some care out of an A&E department and deploy it locally. But actually, look, you've got this brilliant urgent care centre locally that's going to do all this stuff. People like that. As long as you're giving people a better service, they will always come with you. It's about making sure that we deliver. And quite often when we're doing consultation in the NHS, it can be after the fact, like the solution's already there. This is about persuading people that we need to do this. And it's usually about saving money. The system has to be a bit more nuanced in how it does engagement and really listen to people about what they want. And again, as I say, the piece that my colleagues are writing um, on the experiences of Grenfell's health response are so interesting in what happens when you cede the power and you let the people tell you what's needed. And actually, that can be really interesting and surprising. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Becky. Thank you. Thanks very much. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Becky for taking the time to talk with me. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do think about giving us a rating or a review. It really does help us out. I'll be back next week for our regular news review, so please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting primary care and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com.